0: to minimize risk is absolutely key Um, and and nutrition is no exception to that I've seen people where their race has come undone because they haven't got the nutrition right and you know it's it's heartbreaking to watch Um, but often when you review it it's um, most of the time it will be fairly clear as to why it came unstuck.
1: Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Ellen McCubbin, I'm an accredited sports dietitian, lecturer and researcher in sports nutrition at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined as always by my colleague, fellow sports dietitian, Steph Gaskell. How are things going with you Steph? I just got back,
2: I went on a bit of a road trip with my lovely Cavido Cooper. And we went for a, a few runs down in um, in Bright, which was was good fun. It's kind of tricky when you take your your dog because obviously they can't go to the um, you know the national parks and those types of things. So we just cruised around on um, Mystic. You, you might have been here, Alan, Mystic um, Mountain Bike Trail in Bright. Okay, yeah, no, I haven't, um, but
1: yeah, I know the one you're talking about,
2: yeah. You know the one? Yeah, so you can take your dogs there and it's it's really nice. So, um, yeah, Coops and I did that and we stayed in like this RV, like on this massive block with like roosters and, and stuff. So Coops had fun barking at the, um, at the roosters. It's not too cold um, up there yet. It, it was cold we left um, early on Sunday I think it was going to go minus one and they were thinking there'd be snow on you know Mount Buffalo and um, yeah the the mountains so it, it was it was a bit nippy but um, the other days like during the day it was it was pretty nice so we were outside drinking some beers after yep. running yep yeah and what about you you've um, been getting hot
1: yeah it's been the opposite of uh going to brighton and worrying about whether it's going (laughs) to snow or not yeah i think i mentioned uh a week or two ago we were doing some trials with slushies for the tokyo olympics with um with emma jeffcoat who was on one of our earlier episodes um and also another um para triathlete dave bryant who i know is a regular listener so shout out dave um he's over from perth at the moment uh, training with the squad, so they, they have the same coach, um, Danielle, who's based here in Melbourne I work with. Um, and so they were doing a bit of a run through in, in the heat chamber at the Victorian Institute of Sport early last week and so that you know the slushes was part of that sort of run through. Um, so I joined them in the heat chamber for a little while. and I can tell you what Steph. Our heat chamber at the university, we dial it up to 30 or 35 degrees depending on the particular study. Um, but it's usually humidity of sort of 20 to 30%. They had the thing cranking at 35 degrees and 75% humidity because that's what they're expecting for Tokyo. I can tell mm. you it's a completely different experience. I've got no problem being mm. in, the, in, the, uh, in our chamber at, at the uni, yeah, in our but chamber. this was a diff- yep. complete other level. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole floor was just yeah. wet and it wasn't sweat, it was just condensation from the humidity. Yeah. Um, And then obviously a big puddle of sweat where they were as well. But, um, yeah, it was uh, pretty full on.
2: And did they, because I remember you, I think you mentioned this last time or someone did, um, about the water over there, how it's, you know. it's Yeah, yeah, it's it's about 30 degrees
1: water temperature where they do the, the swim leg for the triathlon.
2: Yeah, so do they, what are they doing in regards to that? Are they doing something when they're doing their swim? Are they going I don't
1: know, into warm water? Uh, they or... haven't yet, but I think the plan will be to do yeah. something like that. Uh, apparently, I, yeah. I can't remember if I mentioned it the last time or not, but the um, at the, the Tokyo Test event in 2019, um, the, the yes. Brits did really well at that event um, and it you came out afterwards that they have yeah. been training in, in water, that temperature, oh, no. for quite a while in terms of swimming. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's definitely something I think they're going to have a look at in the lead-up to in Tokyo. Time. But, I mean, those guys, when yeah. Dave's over at the moment, for a while, and they're all heading up to Queensland, talking about escaping the winter. Um, yeah. At the start mm-hmm. of June, for a bit of a training camp, and there's there's three races on up there, uh, and during that camp, yeah. they do the final um, like final selections for the Olympics as well. So, uh, you know, fingers crossed yeah. for those guys that they'll uh, they'll be in the team. Um, but yeah, obviously, a nice nice block of racing for them, and they get to a, escape the Melbourne winter and get up to Cairns mm. and Port Douglas for a few weeks, which would be nice. Nice yeah awesome Mm. that sounds like fun absolutely all right well here on the long munch we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners cyclists and triathletes ask this is the sort of common stuff that that people are always talking about during training or googling or um you know just just wondering about uh the answers to some of these questions and trying to clear up any sort of myths and misconceptions and answer them and we have uh, usually a guest expert in the a episode and an athlete in the b episode but today, Steph, we've got a C episode. It's our first time we've mm. had a C episode, so uh, wow. we decided that, uh, given it was the topic of, you know, how do I tackle my first ultra distance event, and it's quite different, obviously, if you're ultra running versus uh, something on a bike, say, or triathlon, that we would get all of those perspectives from different athletes. So, last last time we had um, episode twelve A with Kelly Emerson, ultra marathon runner, uh, and this episode today. Um, Sorry, that was 12B, not 12A. Uh, And then now episode 12C, 12C. we have 24-hour mountain biker, Kate Pinglace. So really looking forward to to hearing from her.
2: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too and finding out um, all things about a 24-hour racing and some stage racing. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Cool. Well, we also have uh, a bit of social media to uh, talk about this week. Um, So you can contact us if you have any questions or feedback on the podcast at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Uh, And we have been contacted on Instagram by Lionel, who's who's already put in a a question that we're going to plan an episode in the future for, but he... He's been talking about fibre, Steph, because it's something that we've been talking Mm -hmm. about a little bit over the last few weeks in the podcast uh, for various reasons. We talked about it in terms of, you know, gut issues um, in -hmm. the episode that that you did. Uh, We talked about it in the episode around carbohydrate loading um, with both Jose Areta and also Karen Hill. Um, Mm -hmm. And we talked about it just recently in the context of, you know, Training for your first ultra-distance event, as well, in terms of um, you know maybe having to to dial down the, the high fiber foods because it just gives you so much total fiber um, that it could be a bit uncomfortable and, and have some side effects. So um, you know, Lionel was talking about the fact that there might be a bit of confusion here. Uh, fiber is generally considered a good thing, um, but can you have too much fiber? So I'll hand it over to you, Steph. You're the gut expert. Do you want to tell us a little bit about? Yeah. I guess fibre, maybe some of the issues here, can you have too much uh, as well as too little? And you know, what are the, the amounts that we should be aiming for?
2: Yeah, um, sure. So I guess the interesting thing with fibre and in relation to gut symptoms, there actually isn't, from my knowledge anyway, a heap that's actually been done on fibre specifically and its impact on symptoms. Um I think it's kind of just an an association that we've we we make, um, and we see um, from a clinical perspective. Um, so it'd be good, I guess, to down the track to potentially do some further research in that specific area. Uh, what we're talking about with um, with fibre is we know that when we eat foods that contain fibre. It can take a little bit longer to break it down and to digest. So it can kind of empty from the gut, potentially slower, um, depending on the types of fiber. Uh, and so when we're talking about preparing for, you know, ultra running and ultra endurance events, so not just running, but ultra endurance, so whether it be triathlons, potentially cycling, and those types of things. Um, we we know generally that the longer that we exercise um that we suspect that the um the slower our gut can become so it becomes more difficult to digest and absorb um and we can get some injury to the gut so we kind of want to um Uh, be a bit easier and kinder on the gut Uh, and so a strategy that we can use for and and more so we're talking about when we're leading into events
1: so like the 24 hours before
2: exactly so it's not a significant period Um, and again you individualize this because everyone's going to be on a different um based diet you know like we've spoken before about some of the athletes i work with um and you work with you know they can have such a significant energy intake that their actual dietary fiber intake is huge
1: just because they're eating so much food like when you say energy intake is high, they're just the total amount of food in their diet is so big because they need the calories.
2: Yeah, and so like when when I was looking at some um, fibre intake, you know, we were getting, uh, it, even if I was with working with vegetarians, anywhere from 50 to 70 grams of dietary fibre um, a day. Um, and so with those athletes, when we're talking about dialling it back, it, it may just be going down to like 30 grams, which could be, and which generally is like that amount that we tend to recommend in our dietary guidelines for um, healthy sedentary individuals we generally say about 25 plus grams of of fiber um, in a day Um, the the issue is if we have a, a significant amount extra of dietary fibre, it can potentially interfere with um, absorption of other vitamins and minerals. And I think you've actually spoken about this before on one of the podcasts we did too, Alan. Um, mm. And so that's, um, uh, I guess, a potential side effect of having too much Uh But, yeah, when we're talking about it, I guess we're not saying, you know, don't have have fibre and and reduce it every day. Um, We're kind of specifically talking about leading into certain events and then also working with that individual athlete because, um, as we know, everyone can have different gastrointestinal tolerance um, as well. So, you know, it it really is um, depending on them. So hopefully that makes um, sense, Lionel. And um, yeah, if not, just you can shoot us shoot us another message and I'll try and clear it up further.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think this comes back to you know, episode six where we talked with Dr. Tim Crow about why nutrition is or can be so confusing. Uh, and this is, I think, a classic example of that where the general health advice around eating and food is to eat more fiber because, in the general population who are not athletes and not doing lots of exercise, they're generally not getting anywhere near that 30 grams of fibre, they're maybe having 10 to 20 grams a day. Mm. And so the recommendation is to eat more higher fibre foods to try and get that up to the 30 grams and, and meet that kind of target. Um, and, and just from from that perspective, Steph, what are the, what are the benefits of doing that? Of having more fibre? Mm.
2: Yeah, so having more fibre has potentially been um, associated with helping reduce um, certain health conditions like risk of cancer. Um, it can help with bowel movements for, for certain people, it, it could help with bowel movements, so some people that might have constipation, some people potentially that might have hemorrhoids um, where their gut's just, if we don't have much fibre, our gut potentially could get lazy. Um, and so, you know, and, and then by having more fiber, I guess the way that we do that is, you know, by including foods that might be whole grains or cereals and vegetables and fruits, you know, skins on fruit and veggies. So along with that, those types of foods, we're going to be getting a lot of good vitamins and minerals from it as well. So, um, yeah, there's, there's benefits from, from that too. Also, you know, some people that might have, um, diarrhea, even having different types of fiber. So certain soluble fiber can actually um, help um, uh, slow down bowel movements. So it can actually work both ways. Um, So don't think if you've got diarrhea fibers bad or if you've got constipation fibers bad, Um, work with, I guess, a a dietitian if you need to in regards to that and um, they can educate you on all
1: the different types of fiber and food sources Mm. for that. And then the other thing is that fiber tends to make us feel more full, which, exactly. you know, for the majority of the population where the issue is overeating rather than mm. undereating, that's generally considered a good thing. Mm. Um, but I guess if we flip that around and talk about people that are doing large volumes of exercise training, mm. uh, that can become problematic. Uh, one, because as you said, they eat a lot more food and therefore they get even more fiber. Mm. Uh, and two, if they're struggling to eat enough to meet their nutritional needs because of the training then having more fibre is going to make that even more difficult. So, you know, in the context of carbohydrate loading, where you've got to get in that huge amount of carbohydrate, um, fibre is going to make that more difficult than normal. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So So it's more that just some athletes that eat big volumes of food, they're consciously having to reduce the fiber to get it down to that 30 grams rather than most of the population who are consciously trying to get more fiber in to get it up to 30 grams
2: yeah yeah i yeah. think we're still at that you know how we usually say there's nine out of ten australians that don't get their vegetable intake so mm. yeah we still gotta chip away at trying to encourage that message to and yep.
1: boost the fiber yep. so cool All right, there's almost a mini-episode in the episode. Yeah. There we go. Well, let's get into today's discussion, though. Um, And as we said, it is episode 12C, and our topic is how do I prepare for my first ultra-distance event? And today we are very lucky to be joined by 24-hour mountain biker, Kate Penglaze. So Kate uh, is someone that I've worked with, and we talk a little bit about that in the episode. Uh, I first met Kate, I think it would have been 2014 off the top of my head, Um, and she came to me, she'd been racing 24 hours for a little bit, I think she'd raced one uh, Wembo World Championship, so Wembo is a world endurance mountain bike organisation, so a bit different to the UCI that runs road cycling and the Olympic distance. Uh, you know, the Olympic cross-country and and downhill mountain biking. Um, 24-hour races is run by a completely different organisation. But she had done one world championship in 24-hour, wanted to improve on that, had some specific nutrition questions that we then went out to to answer. So uh, I started working with her there. uh, And she's, uh, as you'll hear in this episode, very well organised, very well planned. She's got an amazing support crew in the pits. Um, and so, you know, those sort of people are an absolute dream to work with because, um, you know, they're so organised and you make suggestions and they go out and practice them and then they give you feedback and then you adjust it and then they go out and practice it again and then they have it all planned out and it all kind of runs like clockwork. So, you um, yeah, it's always really satisfying to to work with athletes like that. Um, just in terms of, you know, results, um, so Kate has um, won the Australian solo 24-hour mountain bike championship twice in 2017 and 2018, uh, and she has finished in the top five at the world championships, I think on four occasions now, uh, including twice on the podium, so bronze medal in 2016 in Rotorua in New Zealand, uh, and the silver medal in um, Fort William in Scotland in 2018. So, yeah, so Kate's been sort of at the, the forefront, certainly in Australia and uh, also the world in terms of 24 hour mountain biking for almost a decade now. So we thought it'd be really great to get her perspective on sort of 24 hour racing and um, some of the ins and outs, the practical things uh, to help people if they're first preparing for a, a 24-hour race. And and obviously, Steph, this episode features obviously a mountain biker and mountain biking, uh, but I think so, a lot of the concepts here in terms of the logistics of how you plan for a 24-hour event can be just as relevant to other formats of, you know, other disciplines of 24-hour racing. So, you know, there's track 24-hour running races, um, I pity the poor people who do those events. I can't imagine who would uh, get enjoyment, but but people do. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure there's trail 24-hour events like mm. this as well. So basically the, the concept is you, know, you have a, a circuit and you come back past the same place every hour or two, whatever it is, um, and so you've got a support crew in that one place with you the whole time um, to help you. Uh, And the idea is, you know, you you go as far or, you know, complete as many laps of whatever the circuit is in 24 hours. So whether it's on mountain bike, uh, whether it's on foot, uh, the concept is is more or less the same.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, And she gave, you know, examples of types of foods and um, nutrition that Definitely, um, runners, triathletes um, have so it's it's relevant to to all sports and um, yeah, you could definitely see the analyst um, side in here and um, which I thought was really cool and and how much she appreciated um, that nutrition can really make or break you in yeah, in these types absolutely. of events. So um, that was really good. Really good to see, um, and how she was struggling in terms of um, being able to get that that amount of of carbohydrate in, and so you know you were able to you know help her see um, other ways and other sources that that she could get that in, which she benefited from. So that's great.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly right. All right, well we've been talking for quite a while now, Steph, so we might get straight into this one now, and yeah. <laughs> listen to this uh, interview with 24-Hour Mountain Biker, Kate Penglase.
2: Hi Kate, thank you for joining us. Lovely to be here Steph. Um, so tell us how you um, first got started in, in mountain biking.
0: Yeah, so I'd actually come across from a background of playing touch footy. Um, so I used to play touch footy for uh, for Victoria, and uh, I guess I was I was just at the point where I was looking for the next thing, and uh, I went away with a group of friends for a weekend, and it was actually playing touch. Uh, it was actually touch footy friends, and we went away for a weekend of uh, of mountain biking because there were some people in the group that were mountain bikers and uh, I tried it and it was one of those things that I just, uh, you know, instantly was, I guess, was an instant attraction to it Uh, and there was a number of different reasons for that. So it was... Being in the outdoors, I love, I love being outside, I love being in the bush. Um, so that was a massive component of it. But also there was this huge, um, I guess, fitness component to it. And, you know, my heart rate was was through the roof and uh, that was very appealing to me. Uh, but at the same time, there was this massive technical uh, component to it as well. And it was the challenge of... You know how do I actually get this bike over the rock how do I get it over the log and, and um, yeah I, I guess it just I was I just was you know immediately attracted to that that challenge within that within the bush environment
2: yeah yeah and what got you sort of specifically interested in the 24-hour solo racing
0: yeah so I'd always coming from a fairly competitive sports background I'd always uh, been attracted to um competition and initially when I started riding it was it was just for fun Uh, but I think as I was getting towards the end of my touch footy days I was looking for something to replace uh, the the competition so I was really keen to get into the racing side of it but I, I honestly didn't know where to start to be honest and I'd started a new job and I came across an individual there that was that did a bit of racing. And I said to him, I said, well, he was lining up for a pairs race uh, himself and a friend, and they were doing a mixed pairs 24-hour race. And I said to this individual, I said, if either of your female partners pull the pin for whatever reason, can I have a go? And yeah. uh, as it as it happened, one of the female partners of The mixed pairs teams did pull the pin uh, and then I got to have a start. So uh, I think 12 hours, it was 12 hours of riding because I was obviously sharing the 24 hours with another individual. Uh, It was fairly considerable for a a first mountain bike race, but uh, to me it just represented an immense challenge and uh, I was hooked, absolutely hooked. So that was in 2010, I think it was, and then I think it was uh, 2011 I decided that I wanted to do it solo.
2: Yep and how far had you ridden prior to that like so you know this was 12 hours but in your training how what was the longest ride that you had done?
0: Oh gosh I'd never done anything um, (laughs) remotely like that so back in 1996 (laughs) I was 16 I did the Great Victorian bike ride with school Um, so I guess we were doing days of up to 100 kilometers on a a road bike but leading up to that particular 24 hours part of a a pairs team I think the biggest ride I might have done was 50 odd kilometres on a, on a mountain bike and I can remember doing that and um, being absolutely exhausted uh, yeah. but obviously with the, with the pairs racing you do get a break in between so um, yeah. we would do blocks so I think we started off and we were doing lap on lap off and then as you move into night we were doing three hour blocks so it was a lot okay. to take on uh for, for a yeah. first race but like i said i was i was so wrapped up in the in the challenge of it and um just absolutely loved it so i didn't i'd fair to say i certainly didn't go in with uh, ideal preparation and obviously very different to what i would do now preparing for those kinds of races
2: yeah and it would have been different for you as well um had you done much riding at night
0: I had done a little bit of riding at night but not much. Yes, i have done a handful of rides. I think my first night ride I actually hit a tree. Um, so I've got two, my two little fingers are, are permanently damaged. So the casing on both little fingers is, is damaged because I've hit trees on both sides. Um, and I can remember I got home and uh, it was it was it was quite a cold night. So i have taken my glove off and I'd lost my fingernail and I had blood Ooh. all over all over Ooh. my hand and I now have a permanently damaged uh, fingernail off the back of it. But yeah. I hadn't done a lot of night riding. But the advantage yeah. with the 24-hour stuff is that because you circulate round on a lap during the day, you actually become very familiar with that oh, yeah. with that lap. So. When you do roll in tonight, you have, with a solo race, for example, you've already had six hours of circulating on that particular lap. So it's not as daunting as, as, as what it may appear from the outside.
2: Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and so obviously the last year or so has been pretty hard in terms of racing um, because of COVID. Um, how's the situation looking looking now in terms of racing for you? Um, what's what's kind of ahead
0: yeah, so it was interesting because I think last year was actually going to be my last year racing Elite 24s, um, so I mm-hmm. sort of pegged it as, as being the final year, uh, and then obviously COVID hit, so things changed, um, so I had to make an assessment on whether I was, I guess, ready to, or um, happy to, to keep going. Uh, mm-hmm. We were fortunate late last year, we did get to do a um, an endurance race, it was called the Cattleman 100, uh, it was actually mm-hmm. 175 kilometres on gravel in, in Omeo. so... That wasn't something that I ever had on the race calendar for last year, but it was actually a really nice way to to finish the year. Um, This year, what it's looking like at the moment is that we will have a 24-hour in Australia later in the year in November,
1: whether Mm -hmm. or not
0: that is going to be the World Championships. At the moment, it is pegged to be the World 24-hour Championships, uh, which is delayed from last year. Mm -hmm. However, it's probably, I would think, unlikely that that will go ahead given the current situation. So... If mm-hmm. it doesn't go ahead as the World Championships, it will be uh, the Australia or Asia-Pac Championships if there is a bubble between Australia and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. If there is no bubble, it will be the Australian 24-hour Championships.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's they definitely see. On,
0: on the radar for this year, as is the, um, to, to have another go at the Cattleman 100 again in November.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. We were talking to Karen Hill a few weeks ago yeah. about that race, and, and she was... Talking about how well I think she she struggled a bit with that one, but uh, she said it was an amazing event.
0: Oh, incredible event! It really was. I mean, it was a tough. It was tough, you know. Obviously, the distance and the amount of climbing is is, is tough. But uh, I think that day we had the hottest November day on record in in, in Omeo. So. When you're coming back down the Omeo Valley, heading sort of back towards home or back to Egypt, towards where you start from, it's, it's almost like a sauna. So you've got no breeze. You've got mm-hmm. the heat just radiating up straight from the road. It was uh, it was brutal, but such a rewarding race and such a well-run event too by Vella Grimont in Omeo.
2: And do you have, um, so they're sort of the big races. Do you do shorter races like, you know, leading up to that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I um, often get asked if I, if I would do a 24 hours of practice race or even a 12 hours of practice race. Uh, the answer to that is is never, um, yep. <laughs> because obviously if, you, if you're going out and, and doing those kinds of, or uh, well, that kind of duration on the bike, then uh, it takes time to recover from mm. that. So it's, it's weighing up the amount of fatigue that you are, I guess, prepared to take on, um, but also factoring that you need to recover in time to continue to build fitness and With uh, a 24-hour race or a 12-hour race, you really do need to invest the time into recovery. So most of the training I would do, um, the longer rides would be usually up to around six hours on Mm -hmm. a weekend. So your bigger weeks, and this is obviously factoring in working full-time as well, Mm. um, the bigger weeks are usually around 20-odd hours. Mm, uh, yep. and that's a combination of endurance so weekends you would be would be having a bigger ride on a saturday or a sunday um, but also a lot of interval work as well mm-hmm. yep. yeah and as part of that we do um, with geelong mountain bike club so we actually do dirt what we would call it a dirt crit as well so that's sort of a 50 50 minutes to an hour uh, and that's full gas for, for for that period of time so we do yep. also incorporate the shorter stuff into our training as well
2: yeah do you do the do you do some back like on the weekends, um, long rides back-to-back, like Saturday, Sunday, or you tend to just do sort of the one long ride on?
0: Yeah, you, you tend to. It, it depends. Um, you might do that more as as, as an event or as a uh, – trying to think, like we, for instance, when we go up to – we watch the Australian Road Cycling Championship. so – what we might do when we do that is we would actually ride from the Surf Coast all the way to to Ballarat or Buninyong. Mm. We would watch the race and then we would then we would ride back. So that's mm-hmm. that's a solid, uh, it's a very solid day from here. Mm-hmm. Um, you tend to run on a weekend. You would tend to run a bigger ride or do a bigger ride on a Saturday and then um, a smaller ride on the Sunday. Okay. And and look, the reason for that is is purely around the fact that. For me, for example, I'm working full time. Um, yeah. I have a corporate role. I, I run. Um, I look after a bunch of analysts, and I don't want to go to work on a Monday completely um, ruined, um, yeah. and, and knackered. So I'd rather do the the, the big long ride that's going to kill me on the Saturday, mm-hmm. um, and then maybe back out, back up with three or so hours on the Sunday.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Mm. All right. So. We're talking obviously today about preparing for your first ultra distance event. Um, So someone who might've been doing sort of shorter races and then looking to step it up to maybe 12 or 24 hours or something like that. What are some of the obstacles, like thinking back to when you first started 24 hour racing, what were some of the obstacles or challenges that you found that you had to overcome either in terms of stuff that you just hadn't experienced before or just information like you just didn't know certain things?
0: Yeah, it was interesting because there was actually nothing available at the time on um, on nutrition for, for 24-hour racing and mm-hmm. I know, obviously, Alan, I came to you um, a few years into the piece um, to get some you know, information on that and, and we worked together to, to come up with a nutrition plan but when you first start out, you, you've got – I had no idea um, what to eat and – I didn't realise, you know, how important carbohydrate was, for example, and and I can remember going to my first 24-hour race and and packing things like ham sandwiches and um, and I was thinking about protein and um I was thinking about all not I was thinking about all the wrong things um mm-hmm. that you that you you know I, I, my focus on carbohydrate it just wasn't something that I was really sort of factoring in um. And so you, it's one of those things where you don't know what you don't know uh, and there's yeah. a lot of hype and there has been for a long time on, on the pre-manufactured gels and bars and, um, and and all of that stuff as well and it's really hard to know where to start uh, mm-hmm. with it. So I think for me, I, I looked at what I had friends that were already involved in the sport, so I was having a look at some of the things that they were eating uh, and I can remember a couple of guys, they were really into creamed rice. Mm-hmm. Um, which from a carbohydrate perspective is, is, is pretty good. I was never really a fan of creamed rice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was something that started to give me a starting point really for what I the kinds of things that I should be I should be looking at. Uh, I think back the problem I probably had and, and one of the reasons obviously for coming and, and speaking with you was that because I'm only small, of only you know I'm only five foot and I don't have a, a big stomach to, to take on a lot of food. So it was Looking at how can I get enough carbohydrate into my system um, that's going to fuel me on, but factoring in that I don't want to feel full when I'm when I'm racing a, a, as well. So, you know, starting to think about options and what um, what does that look like?
1: Mm. Yeah, for sure. Do you think? I mean, you, you mentioned before that there was very little information, sort of back when you were sort of first getting into the sport, or oh, probably almost 10 years ago now. Mm. Do you feel that that's changed now? Like, if someone was looking to get into, say, twenty-four hour racing today, there's a lot more available
0: oh, uh, in terms there of is, information. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, an obvious starting point is to go and see a dietitian or a nutritionist, but outside of that, there's there's a lot of information that's available, and um, you know, and I think even now, recipe books, um, just just basic cooking books, they've got you know, there's a lot more nutritional information that's available in in those when you look at individual recipes as well, and um, you know, I think there's there's a lot more information that's readily available now than what there was even even 10 years ago as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, well, let's maybe take a step back now and have a look at sort of training nutrition. Um, you, we've already talked with Steph about kind of the distances that you were doing in training, but as you started to sort of prepare for 24-hour events, I imagine the amount of training that you were doing was – had started to increase quite a bit from what you were doing previously
0: Mm. yeah it did it did i think um I think the big thing there is your volume changes, um, so you're spending more time on the bike and, um, and obviously with that is the, the need for nutrition but the need for food changes as, as well. So I can remember in my very early days just being a lot hungrier um, and I think the interesting thing there is you go through a day and you, you eat all the stuff that you're meant to eat, so you eat all the, the good stuff um, and then it was, it was really around that discipline to not then revert to going for the bad stuff. Um, If that makes sense. So I think we talked about access to information and and building of knowledge and um, really being diligent in not reverting to the junk food after you've eaten all the the stuff that you, I guess, meant to eat. but, yeah, and I think food preparation and being organized with food is absolutely key. Um, and for me, you know a lot of the stuff that I was I still do now is I actually pre-prepare a lot of my meals as well. So I will have food in the freezer, I might have, when I'm coming into a big training uh, block, I might have three weeks' worth of meals that are That's home-cooked cool. meals that are in the freezer ready to go. Um, Impressive. Because the last thing I want to do is get home from work. I'm tired. I've been up early. Um, and to think about food. I just want to grab something out of the freezer and put it in the microwave and heat it up and know it's good for me um, mm-hmm. and know it's going to meet that need. Um, so being organised is absolutely key with food
2: so in terms of the race nutrition um do you find your strategy or the way you think about race nutrition needed to be different compared to if you're doing a six hour or a 100k race so would your race nutrition be different in a six hour versus a 100k
0: absolutely yeah yeah absolutely it would be so i'm actually an analyst by trade so i love numbers (laughs) i love data uh, i love excel spreadsheets so um through some of the work I've done with Alan I actually know what um, or the amount of carbohydrate that I'm needing at different exercise intensities so if you're going out for example you might be racing a three hour um, your nutrition requirements across three hours per hour so the amount of carbohydrate that you need per hour across the three hour period. Um, will be a lot greater than what it will be per hour across a 24-hour period. Um, yep. So what we do, we actually have an Excel spreadsheet and we document everything. Um, so yep. when we go into the bigger races, we actually track the amount of carbohydrate that's being consumed across each of those hours uh, because we have a target amount that I need to be consuming every hour that will see me out throughout that entire 24-hour period. Mm-hmm. So there will be times when you're, for instance, in the first six hours of a race, you might you're tracking above the average mm-hmm. um, but what, what happens is it tends to be ebbs and flows throughout the race mm-hmm. as well so you might have um, you might be full of full of carb uh, and then you, for instance the first six hours you're tracking above what that average is mm-hmm. it might back off for the next couple of hours but then as long as you're coming back to it in mm-hmm. say hour nine and you're still uh, around where that average amount of carbohydrate intake needs to be mm-hmm. um, it, it's, it's around the discipline around that. And mm-hmm. even when you get to the point where you don't feel like eating, um, mm. is, is is knowing that you've got to meet you've got to meet those numbers.
1: Mm. Yeah. And what about the choices of actual foods, Kate? Like if you're doing a, a six-hour race or a, like a 100k mountain bike marathon or something. Would your choices of like the types of foods rather than just the amount or the the carb targets? Would that be different as well compared to a or you know in a twenty four hour event? Would it be different to what you do in those shorter ones?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the key with the twenty four hours, you need to really mix up the sweet and the savoury. So for a six hour race or a three hour race, you know, sweet for that entire period is okay. Um, most people will be able to tolerate that. If you were to look at sweet options for an entire 24 hour period, um, you know, I, there's probably individuals out there that, that are okay with that. But for me, there's no way I can do 24 hours of every single hour having something that's got a sweet taste to it. So it's really about thinking what are the savoury options uh, within the mix. And, even things for instance if you just want to break up the sweet cycle um, salt and vinegar rice cakes so not a lot of nutritional value to them you're not getting a lot of carbohydrate but if you can quickly stuff down a couple of those it just breaks up Um, more of a more of a i guess for the taste buds it breaks up that repetitiveness of sweet so what we tend to look for is as much diversity within what I refer to as a 24-hour degustation menu mm-hmm. as, as as possible um, yep. and so we have a whole I call it my lunch box but if you could think about a you know a big plastic packing container um, that's essentially what we take to a race and there's no way that I would ever consume everything within that packing mm. container because it's, it's huge um, but at least you've got the options there. Um, so for instance if I if I turn around and I don't feel like a um, say for instance a homemade gel um, mm-hmm. that's, that's that's quite sweet, um, I've got an option of a, of a Vegemite sandwich there as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's really, really important. You've got options available to you um, and also that you are keeping a record of what you are eating as well. So my support crew, um, they know exactly what I've consumed. So if I've had might be say four five six hours of consuming sweet foods then they will know that we need to balance it out with some more savory salty options
2: yeah and do you kind of um do a mix like do you tend to favor the sort of the the gel the solid food versus getting liquid calories in or do you alternate that as well is there a preference for you we try
0: and alternate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think there's a couple of reasons. I think uh, because your body has to go through a process of actually digesting yep. the food. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we think about endurance sports as in, I guess, a physical output. So whether in cycling, for instance, it's a, a massive physical output through the legs, mm. and, and with mountain biking, it's it's holding onto the bars and and um, you know navigating the bike through some fairly technical terrain mm. at times. That's your physical output. Or uh, well, that's one part of the physical output, but then your body's also going through that process of actually digesting the food as, as well. And there's energy that, that goes into that. And um, I think there's also fatigue that comes in uh, with, with your internal organs as well. And I, I don't know that the science behind yep. this, but I do know that if you, for instance, were, um, if you had 24, hour, 24 hours of eating sandwiches, uh, that I think, my body would, would get quite tired of having to digest 24 hours of sandwiches. So mm. we tend to, to mix it up um, and, and so that will be solid foods, it will be um, some homemade gels, it will be some liquid. So it's a combination of of, um, of different types of foods.
1: So when you're, when you're riding, obviously, a mountain bike, you've got, um, you know, it's, Potentially quite technical terrain. There's the times where you really can't take your, your hands off the bars. I'm sure everyone that's kind of new to mountain biking sort of goes through this. And obviously, 24 hours where nutrition is so important, it, it's an issue that you have to sort of come across. So when you've got you you picking up things in the pits, uh, whether it's gels or you know some of the more real food that you've talked about, do you, how do you go about eating that while you're riding, or do you find you actually have to stuff it in while you're stopped and then go? So you can concentrate I mean I guess every course is different in terms of how technical it is or not
0: yeah that's exactly right every single course is different and what you do with your, your recce as the course beforehand is you're actually trying to find spots or identifying specific spots in that lap where uh, it's a good eating spot or it's a good it's a good drinking spot often with the pits with 24 and, and probably not just 24 but a lot of your lap races um you you will have an area when you exit the pits that's a good opportunity to eat and drink um now sometimes that you know that that might be quite a distance it it might be for example 500 meters sometimes you'll only have maybe 100 meters before you're on single track and you need to have both hands on on the on the bars um it, it it depends i mean look i've got you know, countless number of photos that have been taken with me as I um, might be exiting the pits where I've got a banana that's you know hanging out my mouth or a gel or you know a sandwich or whatever it might be, and um, and and you know that's because I've got to have two two hands on the bars. It's really again. It's identifying where in that lap is is a good opportunity to, to eat, um, you know. And, and again, it, it goes back to discipline. It goes back to going well. I'm on that section of the course where I know I've got 200 meters, and I've got to get this. I've got to get this sandwich down, or I've got to get this. You know, I've got to get half a bottle down, or whatever it is. It goes back to a plan, and it goes back to you know that diligence around that plan.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that, that's super, super, super key. Mm. Cool.
2: Yeah, yeah. And um, what about the top riders? Do do you see like the top riders doing something extremely different to, I guess, the the more recreational amateur riders, or everyone kind of is just all doing the individual thing?
0: Everyone's got their own thing, um, hmm. and it's it's really interesting because I was thinking about this the other day, and uh, I can remember going to a race in the states a few years ago as the World Twenty Four Hour Titles, and one of the Canadian girls, her entire nutrition plan was was actually around infinite, um,
2: yeah, which, infinite. Uh,
0: which yep. she was she was consuming through through a liquid, and that that worked for her, um, mm. you know. Whereas for me, for example, I don't think I could take on 24 hours of, of nutrition through through liquid. Um, I think yeah. I, I need some real food in there to to mix it up. Um, but that's something that that, that worked for her. And mm. I think, you know, the, the key takeaway within that is that my plan probably wouldn't have worked for her as hers wouldn't have worked for me. So mm-hmm. you really need to come up with a tailored plan that's going to work for you. Um, and you need to train with that as well. Uh, and I, I see this a lot. I think the riders at, at more of an elite level are more likely to train and race on the same food mm-hmm. or the same nutrition plan. Um you can't, for instance, go into a 24-hour race and, and you know, for instance, you might have a, um, a particular gel that you've purchased and you've never tried that in training. Um, you know, that, that is not a wise move. You do see that um, and it surprises me that we still continue to see that. Um, but like I said, you've really got to be training with the nutrition that you're planning to eat on, on race day, especially with the 24-hour because if you – if you muck that nutrition up within the first eight hours you will pay the price for that in the, in the following um 16 hours
1: mm. and with the um I, I guess different competitors like i remember i think it was jason english that he often eats pizza
0: yes 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 mm-hmm. pizza
1: yeah and i mean he's won he won what seven or eight world championships in a row mm. so yeah it's definitely um very individual i mean he just go slice of pizza.
0: Absolutely. Um, and, and people will talk about this too with with Jason and they have seen him at races where he'll come in, he'll take a slice of pizza, he'll consume that as he rolls out of the pits, he'll take another slice of pizza and he'll slap it in the back of his Jersey pocket. <laughs> um, so he's obviously, you know, pull, pulling that out at some point during, during that lap. So, um, I mean, I've started, I I now have pizza as as well Mm. as part of it because I heard that was something that Jason did and Mm. uh, I gave it a go uh, in a race a few years ago and, um, you know, it it worked well. Uh, So I think the key there is is also being open to trying new things um, Mm. as well is, is, is super key.
1: Yeah, And with the solid foods, like obviously that's something that you, as you said, you know, everyone's got to kind of find what works for them. How long did that kind of process take for you to find what works for you, do you think? Is that, we're talking a couple of months or a few years?
0: No, it took a few years. Um, it absolutely took a few years. And it took um, speaking with yourself, Alan, um, but also going away. And I think you'd referred me to a couple of books as, as well. So going away mm. and, and reading those books and, and really um, not just trying to take, Uh, I guess the information that you had given me but trying to understand the why uh, behind that Um, Mm. and it it takes time Um, it absolutely takes time and and we're always looking for for new things to add Mm. into the mix and I can remember a few years ago I was at home on a Saturday night and I had some Turkish delight in the pantry and I pulled it out and I started eating it and I've got quite a sweet tooth and I was working my way through the box and then I looked at the uh, the nutrition on the on the back of the the box and I was I was mortified and um and very excited at the same time. I was mortified <laughs> at the amount of carb that I was Carls consuming just by sitting on the couch watching TV, but at the same time I was looking at going, this would be a fantastic addition to the 24 hour degustation plan because <laughs> you've got this tiny little bit of Turkish delight, um, but absolutely chock full of carbohydrate. Um, so
1: pure carbs basically. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So you're always looking for, for something new and you're always trying uh, new things as well. And I've been fortunate that, you know, I've got a very dedicated uh, individual in my pit crew and, and collectively we, we try new things and we're always on the lookout for, for new things. Um, I've come across one that uh, I haven't tried yet but I, I do have to try and it's. I was speaking to another individual about this on the weekend but uh, my husband, he did a 24-hour race and he tried banana bread with Vegemite on top. Oh, with Vegemite. Yeah, and I was originally, I was like, oh, that's I'm not too different. sure about that but then I was talking to someone else on the weekend who, um, who used to race on the, on the National Road Series scene and she was talking about hot cross buns and Vegemite mm. and she said that's an amazing thing and oh. I thought, well, these two individuals are both on the same party, here, so I think there's something in that. I've got to give that a go. <laughs> yeah, yep. and it might Fair not enough.
2: taste good like what I find as well is like, um, and I say to people, it's like not always what we think tastes nice when we're sedentary and just, you know, at work, mm. but then when we're racing or training that, you know, our, our likes and... Um, uh, taste buds can change a bit. So, you know, it's not necessarily that you would think I'm going to sit down to a piece of banana bread and Vegemite for <laughs> afternoon tea. Um, but in racing and training, uh, it it kind of goes down well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to give that some, that's on the agenda for the next, uh, nice. next, next few races, I think.
2: <laughs> Let us know how it goes. <laughs> I will.
1: <laughs> and so it sounds like, uh, and we had a, another episode last week with Kelly Emerson, who's a, an ultra runner. And I think this is very similar to what she was describing is the fact that, uh, and, and um, Ben Duffus also, who's a, another ultra runner, that you know, even when you feel like you've, you've kind of dialed in your plan and you, you've resolved any sort of underlying issues that might be there, whether it's sort of gut issues or um, you know fatigue or whatever it is, even then you still continue to evolve the plan because your personal preferences are going to change. Um, things that worked well for you three years ago are not necessarily going to work for you this year, it sounds like that's kind of a, a similar process to, for you. Yeah,
0: absolutely, it is. And I, it was funny, like a few years ago, if you'd said to me, um, "Do you use the what I call the pre-manufactured gels?" Um, because I, I do make my own gels, um, and and I said, and I would have said no. I said, you know, I make my own. I know exactly how much carbohydrates in them. I can control that. Um, you know, they're in a little um, triathlon bottle that I can I can take a couple of sips of, and then you know, leave it, and, and then pull it back out halfway through the lap um i didn't tend to touch the pre-manufactured stuff but having said that now i actually um i really like the cyst gels Mm. for example Mm -hmm. um and so they're something that i wouldn't have had as part of my nutrition um even going back sort of even two years ago but now that they're a part of it and you know they, they don't cause me to have gut issues i like the taste of them you know it's easy to get the uh to get the liquid out you know there's a number of reasons why but Um, things do change and I think it's it's key to being open to perhaps something that might not have worked for you previously is there's no harm in giving that another go Um, because for whatever reason it might work now Mm. it didn't two years ago that's okay Yep. Mm. good
1: point yeah and in terms of daytime versus nighttime how do you find that your choices in terms of food or foods versus liquids, like how, do you sort of have a deliberate strategy for night that's different to daytime or is it just sort of a continuation and then modify it as the need arises kind of thing? Yeah,
0: there's a couple of things that happen at night. So um, most in most environments you're racing in, it, it gets colder. Um, And for instance, I raced in Scotland in 2018 and it was cold for the entire 24 Mm -hmm. hour period, but um, obviously at night it it got very cold and we were in the Northern Highlands in Scotland and we were racing up the side of Ben Nevis and I think a week after we raced it actually snowed, so it it was cold. when we got to night, it had been raining for 12 hours. Um, so we got to obviously midnight, it had been raining for the entire period and uh, we were starting to really feel the cold. So one thing that I did in that race or one thing I said my pit crew did was we had uh, we just did uh, a veggie stock cube or veggie or a chicken stock cube or beef or, or whatever it was and I, and I took that out in my bottle. So... My bottle that I took out didn't, we'd, we'd taken out um, you know, the, the electrolyte carbohydrate mix, we dropped that for a lap and I just went out with a really hot um, vegetable sort of stock cube mix and, and it was ideal. It was ideal because firstly I was cold so I needed something that would warm me up internally um, but secondly it was salty and so I talked about the sweet and you get sick of the mm. sweet and need something to break that and that was perfect. Um, so both myself and the American girl, we were we were, both onto, uh, we were both onto that in the in you know for a few hours through the night nighttime period. Um, I've had other races also in Australia where we've also done a similar thing. So uh, for instance, we've taken that uh, the old uh, constituted uh, dehydrated potato yep. deb mm-hmm. and putting that in a snaplock bag with some maltodextrin and a veggie stock cube. Uh, again, it's salty and it's warm. You know, and that's exactly what you, you know, at 12 midnight, I can tell you that that's like a Michelin star meal, (laughs) like it is the most amazing thing you'll ever have. So you do tend to, you do tend to mix it up a little bit, depending on conditions.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, we've, uh, you sort of talked about um, sort of going through pits and having a pit crew. So I guess for, for listeners who aren't familiar with 24-hour racing, you obviously you do the same loop, um, you know, depending on the course. Uh, that could be anything from half an hour to a couple of hours. Um, and then you come back past the same pits every time. And so you've got your support crew that are constantly there. They can set up within a, like a marquee or something um, and have everything just sort of set out, ready to go. So they don't have to run from checkpoint to checkpoint, maybe like mm-hmm. ultra marathon running or something like that which gives them a lot more, I guess, opportunity, as you said, to sort of track and keep tabs on things um, and to have that smorgasbord sort of available mm-hmm. to you constantly throughout the race. Uh, and you've obviously talked about um, you know, your your team and um, Glenn, who's been a, a massive support to you over mm-hmm. the years in terms of, of pits. Do you want to talk a little bit about the role that the, the crew have in, in all of this? Um you sort of alluded to bits and pieces of it, but how that kind of works and and how you as the rider then kind of interact with them and and vice versa, like how much is you driving the decision making versus them driving the decision making, that sort of thing? Yeah,
0: Um, I think the main thing there is communication. So obviously uh, I look at it it as in my role as the rider is actually very simple. Um, All I've got to do when you actually break it down, you look at it quite clinically, is all I've got to do is go and ride a bike. Now I know, obviously, you know, um, in practice it does get it is more complicated than that. But if you think about purely in terms of a responsibility, I ride the bike. A lot of that decision making that's taking place that's happening in the pits, and so Glenn uh, and and the other support crews they're taking a huge amount of responsibility on on their shoulders. As the rider, so uh, there's two two things. Riding for one, um, but the second responsibility that I have is to communicate to Glenn. And that's not about detailed conversations. It's not about coming through the pits and, you know, sitting down for five minutes and reviewing how that lap went and reviewing the nutrition and all of those kinds of things. It's about coming into the pits and knowing that you've got only a very, very small window to communicate and get your point across. Um, and so it's going into the pits and being organised. And, and, for example, it might be something along the lines of um, if, a, if you might have a headache that's starting to kick in, for example, is saying to Glenn, next lap, can I have Nurofen? Or or Pantol, not Nurofen, so Panadol. Can I have Panadol? Um, and so what's happening in that situation is I'm, tell, I'm telling him I've got a headache and I, and I need some Panadol. I'm not expecting him to get it. At that pit stop, because by the time we, you know, like it usually that kind of thing is there, ready to go. But it's going to be a lot more efficient if I can give him the heads up that the next time I come round, I'm, I'm going to be wanting wanting Panadol. So from that, he's he's working out two things. He's, he he knows I've got a headache, and so he's also going well. Why has she got a headache? Has she got a headache because she hasn't taken on board enough fluid? Um, you know, and, and it's hot. What would be the reasons reasons for that? So he's already starting to go through his own analysis process in the pits to try and work out the why to try and combat the why. If that yep. makes sense. So there's a lot. Like I said, I really believe that as the rider, our our job is very simple. Um, a lot of that um, that that thinking uh, and analysis is actually happening with the, with the pits.
1: And so I'm assuming that you're having that sort of thinking process in the sort of like the five minutes because you know that the lap intimately by you know the first couple of times you've done it so as you're coming in you know last few minutes before you come into the pits you're starting to think what are the key things I need to communicate what do I want this time around what do I want to be ready for the following lap that kind of thing
0: yep yep because it's amazing when you look at riders like so many riders will waste precious time in the pits um, because they're not going in prepared Um, and I say the same like because I do three peaks as a wave leader with the 11 hour group I, I say this every single year in the rider briefings that When you go into your rest stops, be organized and know exactly what it is that you want to achieve in those rest stops uh, and be diligent and stick to that plan. So don't get into the rest stop and then decide you want to fill your bottle up and then you want to um, go and grab a bar and then you want to go to the toilet. Get in there and and be really clear on what that plan is and get in and execute. That's really, really key.
1: Yeah. Okay. Any um, sort of tips or advice that you would give for people maybe doing their first race, either the riders or people who are going to be crew for riders?
0: I think going with a plan. Uh, and I think you'll, you'll come away afterwards and there'll be a lot of things you look back on. And you go, oh, you know, that didn't work out and oh, we, maybe we should have done this and we should have done that. But you've got to at least start by going in with a plan uh, and you're not going to perfect it. There's, there's no chance of, of perfecting that. I mean, I think I've done 15, 24 hours now, and the, not one of those have have I perfected. So, but you have to go in with a plan, um, and then if you go in, with, you know, with with some kind of sort of framework, um, and it, and it's an agreed framework as well between rider and, and pit crew is is really important. You've got to be on the same page. And leading into those events, uh, it's not just a matter of being on the same page on the day. It's about the rider taking the pit crew on the journey with them into that event. That's that's really, really key going with a plan. And then as you would in in any kind of work environment afterwards, you do an assessment of of what worked and what didn't work Um, and the approach to it. I think the more clinical you can be with your approach to it, the better the result Um, and then the better the learnings that you can put into action the next time around.
1: Yeah. Yeah. okay. Now, in terms of, I guess, challenges or problems that you've experienced in relation to nutrition, I guess, through um, either in training but probably more so on on race day for 24-hour events, are there things that you've sort of had to learn the hard way?
0: Yeah, actually, it's interesting that the last 24-hour I did, um, I learnt the hard way on something. So that was my 15th 24-hour. And my, my nutrition was fine. It wasn't an issue with the nutrition, but... What ended up happening, I, 8 hours into the race, I came down with a stomach bug and it wasn't, uh, like I said, it wasn't due to nutrition. I felt fine for the first 8 hours. I was riding well, I was in good form. I think I was 20-odd minutes up. Um, everything was, was was looking really good at that point. And then I came into the pits. So I remember I drank some Coke um, and then I rolled out of the pits and 300 metres out of the pits, I then vomited the whole lot up. And then for the next few hours, I, I couldn't keep any food down. Um, and we've thought back again, you know, Glenn and I have had a number of different conversations on this and what went wrong? Where did it, where did it go wrong? Because nobody else in my team was sick. We'd all eaten at the same restaurant the night before. Um, we'd all consumed water from the same source. And the only thing I can think of is that the morning of the race, so we start racing at 12 noon, I went to the I went to the toilets and there was two doors that you needed to push um, to get out of the, the women's toilets at the venue. And I'd come out of the toilet, I'd wash my hands thoroughly, but I'd still had to go through those two doors. And I, I wonder if perhaps I picked up some kind of bug um, for, from that particular environment. Even if it wasn't from that environment, it was obviously something that I've come into contact with, um, you know, in the hours before the race. So, and I think we're all probably pretty good at this now, but I would probably um, sanitise, sanitising the hands um, would be my takeaway from that.
1: Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you sort of had a bit of gastro for a few days after as yeah,
0: well. Yeah, I did. And, you know, it was a, it was a real shame because, you know, I, I trained really well. I was in great form leading into it. Um, and, you know, that that's what caused me to come undone. So... My takeaway from that was definitely around a sanitisation um, yep. piece.
1: Yeah, cool. And then thinking back, um, you mentioned we, we did some work, uh, I think it was before Weaverville World Championship. Yeah, 2015. Was the first one? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so, do you want to tell us a little bit about, I guess, the challenges you were experiencing at that time, what you did, and and what, yeah, how that kind of overcame those challenges? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it was really around at that point. I had no idea how much carbohydrate I needed to be consuming across a 24-hour period. So it was trying to understand firstly what was that quantity, what was what was the numerical number that Glenn and I could take away and and, and work with. Um, that was the first thing. The second question we had was around the source for carbohydrate. So you know, you might have, for instance, I talked about Turkish delight before and you've got a very small piece of food that you get a lot of carbohydrate from. So I guess if you think about it in terms of a return on investment, um, it's quite a high return on investment versus if you were to consume, um, for instance, a, um, a coffee scroll. Um, and so what my concern at, the moment, at that time was that I felt like I was taking on like the carbohydrate that I needed, but I was feeling very full in doing that. So it was really around what are the other sources that I can use that aren't going to make me feel full um, so that we can get, we can maximise that return on on investment.
1: Yeah, And so can you give me some examples of sort of what you were doing before and, and what you changed to that sort of reduced the volume of food that went along with those carbs?
0: Yeah, one of the main things we introduced was actually maltodextrin um, as, a, as, a, as a powder form. So we introduced that into, into the, the fluid. So I was taking that on through my bottles um, and combining that with electrolyte. Um, and then also putting that into a, a gel form as as well. so making uh, making my own gels, and then also introducing that into other food sources as well. So I've talked about the deb and the and the, the dehydrated potato and, and bringing it into that as well. So that was uh, that was a, a fairly major piece of the piece of the puzzle um, and it's still something that we've you know there's obviously things that have been changed over the years, but that's something that's remained very uh, consistent. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. And, and I guess the other piece there you mentioned was trying to work out like what was the number, how much carbohydrate did you need? And we did a little bit of work around that, um, going into a lab and actually measuring your carbohydrate use kind of at at race pace and and Mm. trying to work out you know how much it was and and obviously you know as you said before you know you're five foot you're quite short um i think your weight at that time i don't know it's pretty similar now was was only about 45
0: 45
1: kilos kilos. yeah Yeah. so you know for you your carbohydrate needs were probably much lower than the average person just because there's less of you Mm. um to um you know smaller muscles to 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 do that work so um and i think It was kind of reassuring because i don't think you were eating significantly more than that at the time but it was kind of reassuring to go into the lab and come out and go well actually that's enough that we don't have to try and push it harder or some more than that because i think that was kind of the concern that you'd had at the time
0: yeah absolutely yeah absolutely it was and again it's about adding um a science um adding science to the equation
1: Mm, yep all right steph i'm going to make a couple of blue bits red and then i'll hand over to you
2: I was just going to say, have you, um, with your writing, have you come into any um, gut issues at all? <clears throat> like in terms of, apart from the bug that you had, obviously, um, not something you could have controlled, but um, do you tend to find that you struggle with any, um, particularly in the longer events, like your, yeah, your 24-hour events, um, any bloating, stomach pain, needing loose stops, that type of thing?
0: I'm, look i'm I'm pretty fortunate mm. um I, I and I honestly cannot recall a race where i've where I've had gut issues um and I think there's a look it, probably that's a combination of um i think good planning but you know th- there's no question that that's also related to um I think there's an element of luck there um, as well. I think for whatever reason, my genetic makeup, um, I've, you know, I've got fairly, I guess, robust, um, fairly robust stomach. So I've been fortunate in in that respect. Um, you know, but, but I've I've heard you know countless number of stories on people that have overdone the gels, and I can remember some of the reading that Alan had referred me to, and I found it really interesting that if you take on too high a concentration of carbohydrate into your into your gut, then water comes from your body through I think your small intestine to, to balance it, to balance everything out and, and that can um, put people in obviously gut issues but um, dehydration as well. And I can remember reading about that and again it was about, you know going away and i had information from alan on on the why or on, on i guess on, on what to do but it was really around me understanding the why so for instance i know that if i if it was gels for example that i was taking on um too many gels and i was not balancing that out with enough fluid or water then that, that that's the risk that you, that you run so um I think a lot of it for me is is being it's around that awareness and and you know it's 24 hour racing and and it doesn't matter what the race is it doesn't matter whether it's a hundred meter sprint, um, you know you've put so much time and investment into that event and, you know like I said I, I work full time um you know and a lot of my racing has, has been self funded as well, um so I'm you know I'm investing a lot into going overseas to compete at at, at these events and. Um, So you're trying to put in place every possible thing, uh, everything you can do to minimise risk. It's all about minimising risk and whether that comes down to your nutrition plan, whether it comes down to um, your bikes and and, and ensuring you've got spares and ensuring that your bikes are are serviced before you go into an event, anything you can do to minimise risk is absolutely key. Um, and, And nutrition is no exception to that i've seen people where their races come undone because they haven't got the nutrition yep. right and you know it's, it's heartbreaking to watch um but often when you review it it's um most of the time it'll be fairly clear as to why it mm. came unstuck yep.
2: so um we're going to go into the fun bit now just so listeners can get to know a little bit about um about yourself apart from um Mountain bike riding. Um, so, if you could do anything um, besides what you're doing now, um, which it sounds like you really enjoy the mountain biking and um, the analyst um, side of things, what would
0: you do? Oh, there's plenty of stuff that I'm um, that I'm really bad at. Um, I don't have, for instance, I don't have a creative. Um, element to uh to my makeup so you know as i said before i'm very analytical um you know i, I can obviously i can play sport um but when it comes to things like music uh you know whether it's playing a musical instrument whether it's drawing yep. um whether it's painting i'm, I'm hopeless yeah um so i would i would love to have more of a creative bent yep. um i think to balance things out that would, that would be really nice because i look at you know what some of the creative individuals in our, in our society do yep. and i'm completely blown away yep. so if I could sing, if I could dance, if I could yep. paint, anything like yep. that, I'd Do it, that give amazing. it a crack.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, and who's someone that you've always wanted to meet, um, and why?
0: Yeah, good question. And I, uh, I was just saying to Alan before we started, I, I had the opportunity on the weekend to actually meet mm-hmm. Drew Jin. Um, and I think you know every Australian knows uh, his, uh, his his rowing CV and, and certainly his cycling CV and uh, and you know I was I was aware of that but having the opportunity to meet him on, on the weekend and actually ride with him and, um, and and understand you know that there was so much more to him than just his rowing and his cycling and um, that was an absolute highlight for me um, and I was I was completely blown away um, by how humble. He was, um, but also by how personal he was, and and um, and how normal he was as a person. Because I think quite often we put not just athletes, but we we put people that have that are in a public spotlight. We put them on a pedestal, and I think sometimes people can be scared to engage with these individuals on a, on what we would call a, a normal level. Um, but I can I can tell you now. So aside from the fact that I'm I'm five feet tall and, and Drew is uh, massively <laughs> tall. I'm not sure exactly how tall he is. But, um, you know, whether that's intimidating or not, I'm not yeah. sure. But, you know, as a, as a person, um, I got such a buzz out of actually meeting him and, and having a conversation with him. So um, had he been on my hit list as, as, as someone that I would love to meet, I, I tend not to have yep. a list. Um, but I just know that, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to have had the opportunity to engage with him over the yep, weekend. Yeah.
2: Um, Favourite thing to eat or drink after a hard ride?
0: Yeah, that's an easy one. I'm not sure whether it fits into a, a good nutrition plan, but uh, it's either a sour beer or an apple cider.
1: Oh, we just had an episode all about that. You're very
2: okay to have have the beer or cider
0: it's usually not one either
2: no it's it's a couple so but again (laughs) fine because if you're not racing again after a while go for it and it's the r component of recovery which is relaxing
0: yes yes (laughs) absolutely (laughs) what
1: what about it after a 24-hour race i imagine it'll be a bit different
0: yeah it's interesting I, i find this even after a big ride i'm I think you think, well, like people think you, you're going to be absolutely ravenous after these big events, but often you're so tired, like physically tired, but you, you, your guts and your stomach and you, you're so mm. sick of eating. Like you really are just, you, you're just over it. So I actually find that straight after these events, I'm actually not that hungry. And what tends to happen, it's not usually that the next day, it's usually the day after that you, you get the... Um, I refer to it as I turn into a bit of a ravenous mm. pig, um, and and it's almost that's the point at which your body's recovered from um, from eating for for the purposes of the event, and then it's ready to I guess it's probably playing a, a bit of catch up at that point. Mm. Um, mm. But immediately after, I'd you know for instance you usually go you know that the first meal that you have after a big event I very rarely would get through the entire meal. Um, aspirationally I might think I'm going to but um, it would be rare that I actually would yeah I
2: remember after I did like some 100k races um, I would yeah same thing not feel like much you know immediately after but then like I'd actually have all this food and sometimes I've had a heap of food left over from the race um, and I'd be like lying down and I would wake up midnight or 1am and then I'd just be starving so I'd just actually get whatever was there because I didn't want to walk anywhere and then I'd just like (laughs) eat that, go to sleep, wake up again, be ravenous and eat and then yeah the same thing like a couple days later or a day later then yeah you, you start just getting through more Catch and more up. food and, and yeah. catching
0: up. Yeah, I've had that too. I've woken up at, you know, funny hours of the night because your sleep patterns are all yes. the whack anyway after a 24-hour and, yeah, been completely ravenous. Yeah. And it'll be 3 o'clock in the morning and you're like, oh, I'm stuck. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: and what about, do you live by any particular piece of advice or is there, a you know, one thing that you kind of um, go through, even in your race, you know, is there a particular saying that you have to get you through some races
0: yeah i think for me and it's not just with the with the cycling but for probably life. everything i do in life mm-hmm. um life's short mm-hmm. um and you know and we're, we're fortunate we're fortunate for a number of reasons you know, obviously that we, we live in a um in a in a developed mm-hmm. country um and we have access to a lot of opportunity and um you know i think it's 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 taking those opportunities, and and I know for me with the cycling in that I you know for the 24 hours stuff I thought not everyone will get the opportunity to do this, and you know I have the opportunity um, to, to do it as you know i obviously physical I'm physically capable um, that that's that's one part of it, but also you know I thought well this is this is this is rare, so you know I, like for me it's about no regrets. I don't ever want to look back. I don't want to look back in 10 years time and go. I could have done that 24-hour thing. I could have gone overseas. I could have raced at worlds. I, I could have done it. I should have done it. Mm-hmm. I don't want. I want to. I want to look back and know that I did it and, and know what the outcome of that was and, and know that I took every opportunity to um, to go and do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And I've, I've heard people say before, Kate, um, there's only like you only have so many 24-hour races in you. Do you sort of subscribe to that view as well?
0: Yeah, I, I do to a certain extent. I probably don't align to uh, what I've heard a lot of people say and a lot of people will say three or four mm-hmm. uh, I actually I don't think three or four is enough I think if you mm-hmm. really want to go and work out how to do a 24-hour properly you've got to be you've got to stick with it for a bit longer than three or four that the first one you do you're completely naive mm-hmm. um, you know and it's one of those things you'll 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 probably muck up most most parts of it um, there'll be parts of it you, that you'll probably nail as well but You really want to be coming back for number two um you know number three it's not until probably number four five six that you really start to get you know a a feel for what you should be what you should be doing within them um and so i I just don't think three or four is for me I, i was still learning so much there was still so much at three or four that that was open um to being perfected uh, now, perhaps for other individuals, they, that they get there a bit quicker than I do, I'm not, I'm not sure, but um, and I think the other thing to bear in mind, too, is that they say, you know, for most people, it takes five years to, to get cycling legs, um, you know, and, and bearing in mind with 24s, are not something you're doing every week. So you might be doing, you know, two, two a year, for example. Um, some people may only be doing one a year, um, but you, you do need to give yourself time um i think with with them so you know i'm at that stage now where i've done 15 i'm I'm, you know i'm keen to i'm keen to at least do another one this year but there's other things now that that are part of the equation um you know for me personally like when i was when i was doing it I, i i was single for for a lot of the time um and for me my focus i could go and ride my bike for as long as i wanted and I and I had a job. They were my two focuses: was, was career and, and writing. Um, whereas now um, things have changed. You know, I'm I'm 40 now. Of uh, you know, I've, I've married uh, a beautiful man only you know four weeks ago. Um, I've got three lovely stepchildren. Um, so priorities have have, have shifted me now um, mm. so 24 hours is still a focus for this year um, riding will probably always be a part of my life but uh, there's other things that are now part of that part of that equation so mm.
1: so coming back to what you're saying before it's kind of do it while you have the opportunity yep, as well absolutely yeah yep. yep. I
2: reckon you've pretty much answered the last question was um about what's an event that you haven't yet done but you've got on the bucket list, is is it your next 24 hours or is there another event you want to do that's not even 24 hours?
0: There's, there's a few things actually. Yeah. I, um, I I got the opportunity on the weekend to be part of a group of people where we wreckied a, a gravel version of the Geelong to Warrnambool yep. um, and so if that does end up popping up on the calendar next year as, as a race, um, you know, I would, would love to be a part of that. I would love to do um, some bike packing, oh, for yeah. example. So that's not that's not race yeah. orientated, um, but you know I would love to go and you know um, be involved with some of those things. I'd love to do a stage race yeah. um, with with my husband yep. Brett. Um, you know I think that would that would be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, there's there's no shortage of, of, of cycling things. I, I mean I've even toyed with the idea of doing a 24 hour single speed example mm. so not racing um at an elite level with gears yep. but actually you know just just for the hell of yep. it um just doing it on a single speed bike yep. uh, so i guess my list of things that i want to do on a bike is still large yep. uh but it, it's probably not doing them at with, with the focus being
1: Competition. To, to race yep. at an elite level yeah yep. yeah all right well on behalf of both of us kate and all the listeners who i I'm sure we'll get a huge amount out of this. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, It's great to sort of hear and and for people to be able to learn from your experience and uh, to find out a bit more about the sort of the practical stuff rather than just the the basic nuts and bolts of nutrition. So thanks so much for your time.
0: Uh, Thank you for the opportunity, uh, Alan and Steph, and lovely to speak to both of you.
1: Yeah, nice to speak to you too. And good luck
2: with your events. Hopefully the 24-hour event goes ahead in one shape or other. Yeah.
0: Yes. Fingers crossed.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thanks.
0: Thanks. Thank
2: you. Awesome. That was a wealth of information from um, Kate. Really good practical advice. Uh, So could you summarize that wonderful information for us, Alan?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, as you said, there's a lot of uh, really great practical stuff in there. Um, in terms of the, the planning, I think, is is probably the the one thing in there. You know, Kate talked about that sort of risk mitigation and, and managing risk, and you're in a 24-hour race, there's a lot that can go wrong, whether it's your bike or whether it's your nutrition um, or, or factors related to nutrition in terms of hydration and, uh, you know, gut issues and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, having a really good, solid plan um, beforehand is is important but also um and i think this is very similar to what kelly emerson described in last week's podcast is having that flexibility and having enough things available that you can be flexible with your plan to say you know it's getting to three in the morning and in your plan you know plan a was to have x y and z at that time but psychologically it's just not that's not what you want or need at that time that you can then switch it up and go okay let's do this instead um, so you've got that plan B and C and D, um, and then having, uh, importantly, having the stuff there to be able to actually do that. So it's one thing to say, okay, well, if I don't like you know, whatever it was that I planned to have at this time, I want something else. But if you don't have that something else there and available, because you only packed enough of that, just enough for the whole race, and you've already consumed that six hours earlier, you don't have it there. You know, Psychologically, in, in something like a 24-hour race, that can just crush you. Psychologically, so having enough of everything that at any point, you know, twenty hours in, you haven't run out of something because you went hard on it early, and maybe you do want that again, and it's not available. Um, so I think that that was a really important one. Uh, obviously, you know, as we heard in there, you know, Kate's uh, quite small in stature; uh, she's only forty-five kilos. So um, one of the key things um, that that we sort of worked on was understanding how much carbohydrate was enough for her, um, and and being conscious that. Potentially for her in 24-hour racing, where the intensity is fairly low, um, that there's and at her body size being quite small, there's a good chance that we could easily overdo the carbohydrate and put her at increased risk of gut issues when it's actually not necessary. Um, and that was one of the big learnings, I guess, from from when we worked together back in sort of 2014, 2015, um, was that she simply didn't need to, you know, try and get more than the. 40 odd grams of carbohydrate an hour Uh, and that's you know she was always around that sort of 40 to 50 grams an hour mark it wasn't like um, she was having massively more than that but it put her mind at ease that that's all she needed and that she didn't have to try and push it harder Um, and and that was a result of you know some lab testing and and looking at her carbohydrate oxidation so basically how much carbs she burns per hour at at race pace uh, for 24 hours um, in you know in the months leading up to the event so a bit of planning a bit of data um certainly went a long way to, to helping her and putting her mind at ease in terms of the, the planning side of it um, she talked obviously about the pit crew and the importance of you know having a great relationship with your pit crew having you know, a really good system in place of how you're going to communicate with them and and make sure that they know what you want and what you need um, and being able to put that into to place on race day, and and not have it break down because you don't know how to, you know, communicate with each other and what you're saying, and and also just being organised. And again, you know, Kelly said that in the previous one too is when you come into a, uh, a checkpoint if it's an ultra marathon or the pits, you know, 24 hour mountain bike race, you know, you need to know what you want before you get there. So you don't sit there fiddle-farting around and then leave again and then go, oh, I forgot about this or, you know, I should have done that or whatever. Um, you know, you, you get organised, you know what you want, you get in, you get it and then you get out again um, and and just keep the ball rolling.
2: Yeah. Yep, yep, spot on. Um, I was uh, actually one of my participants today just talking about how, you know, we're saying about having variety of, of intake because we can get Flavor fatigue, etc. Um, it was hilarious. Chris was in the lab today as well, and um,
1: so Chris this... is one of the other um,
2: oh, sorry. the researchers yes. and
1: clinicians we work with in the, in the lab. He does a lot okay. of the um, the clinic based. So when people come in for testing and and things not part of a study, just coming to pay for it, uh, he does a lot of those.
2: Yes, shout out to the lovely Chris um rouch um so yeah uh he so this gentleman's just you know gonna do a a ultra um potentially 100k down the track and um anyway sort of doing the study and wanting to learn about nutrition which is fantastic um and so we just had a conversation okay you know what are you currently doing um in terms of fueling um and it was like, oh, I'm having um, a um, a, Snickers, a Snickers bar every hour, a fun size Snickers bar every hour. And I thought that's awesome, like I love, love that as well. And I used to do that in my um, fueling too, have fun size um, bars. Um, but we were just then talking about, okay, well, hey, how about we, we widen up the variety and the options here because it might be fine for shorter duration events, that when we're getting into 100Ks where we're going hours upon hours, um, we can run into um, to a lot of different issues. Um, and we wanna also bump up, see if we can bump up the carbohydrate and try and prevent some, some gut symptoms, the potential risk of gut symptoms down the track too.
1: And there's only so many Snickers bars
2: you could eat in 15 hours, I would have thought. Oh, Yeah, totally. Like when I used to fuel and do 100K races, um, I remember in UTA and I had like a whole batch of like Chucky bars and initially I thought, oh, amazing. Like I want to just have, I get excited about all the different chocolate options. But, yeah, you definitely, again, everyone's different, but, yeah, you, you definitely get um Past that sort of sickly sweet um, stage, so uh, yeah. But um, that was really just an example um, to say, yeah, variety can be a good thing, and just be aware of of flavour fatigue. Um, so
1: yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, that brings us to a close for episode twelve C. I'm yep. trying to get it right, <laughs> um, but it rolls on. We have a twelve D. So. We have one more athlete perspective around ultra-distance events. We've talked about running. We've talked about cycling. So next week we're going to talk about triathlon. Yep. So who have we got next week, Steph?
2: We have the great man, Kev, Kev Ferguson, Kevin Ferguson. So uh, he is a, a triathlete, done everything from the shorter to up to the Ironmans, done a lot of Ironmans. Um, and I've worked with Kev for, for a number of years Uh, and so yeah we just thought it would be great to get um a perspective of um you know of how he uh sort of entered into iron man uh and the nutrition obstacles that he um got it you know um sort of were presented to him and and how we got around those so um we will be talking to kev from south australia uh next week
1: Mm. And yeah, he's done some pretty incredible things during Iron Man. We won't give it away now. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we'll he- hear all about some of his uh, interesting adventures during an Iron Man race next week. <laughs> yeah.
2: Awesome. Looking mm. forward to that. Looking yeah. forward
1: to it. Cool.
2: Um, yeah
1: all right well so this i think wraps up the the episode for this week remember if you've got any feedback for us good bad or otherwise or you have any particular questions that you'd like answered on the podcast you can contact us at the long munch on facebook instagram or twitter and we'd be happy to have a look at that and see if we can make that into an episode for you and and answer that question because this is all about common questions that people have and and we enjoy answering them so if you've got one that that we haven't thought of yet, we'd we'd love to add it to our, our hit list.
2: Awesome. Cool. Look forward to seeing everyone next week.